Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the gift that is musical worship. We are grateful, and we're grateful for uh, the fact that it's something we can join in together. We're thankful that even as uh, the Bible talks about having skilled musicians in leading, we're thankful that we have that and we're able to enjoy that as well. Encourage us today as we hear from your word, uh, build your church in the process, and allow us to live successful Christian lives that would bring honor and glory to Christ and joy to our souls as a result of our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite sayings, and I probably say it too often, but I'm going to say it again this morning because it's a great introduction, uh, and that favorite saying is, don't just do something, stand there. I love to say that. Don't just do something, stand there. I love it because it's so wrong-sounding. I love it because it's so counterintuitive, because we're used to hearing people say, don't just stand there, do something. But when it comes to authentic, biblical Christianity, it's better to say it the other way. It's better to say, don't just do something, stand there, because the Bible talks about our standing spiritually in Christ. It's a, it's a restful kind of stance. We're not just to be running around doing all sorts of things. We're called to stand in Christ, to, to rest in Christ. And that's because in the Bible, again, genuine, authentic, biblical Christianity, Jesus Christ is the one who has done everything. He is the one who came to earth. He became a human being so he could represent the rest of us. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled God's commands to love God and love neighbor. He then voluntarily went to the cross to suffer a horrific death, a death of judgment, experiencing judgment, to atone for our sins. He did that. And then he was raised from the dead on behalf of everyone who would ever believe in him so that we could be raised. But it's all about Him, His work, His doing things in particular so that we might stand in Him, so that we might rest in Him as our representative. And interestingly enough, even from there, that's where we do things, Christian living, Christian actions, but we do things from the posture of standing in Christ. And so... Let's think along those lines as we read the very end of this book called 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to 1 Peter. We're going to finish the book of 1 Peter today. And so let's look for that kind of standing emphasis because we're going to hear this command in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12 at the end. Stand firm in it. And he's talking about the grace of God in Christ. So if you would, follow along with me as I read those last Three verses of First Peter chapter 5. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a holy kiss of love, with, with the kiss of love, Sorry, I'm reading other Bible verses into this Bible verse. At least it was a Bible verse. Okay, sorry. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. 
concluding remarks. It's a great wrap-up of the whole book. And so what we'll do this morning is we'll have a wrap-up of the whole book in light of these last three verses. Um, and, and the emphasis is going to be on standing. Standing firm in the true grace of God. And in the context of First Peter, the true grace of God would be the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we see the true grace of God. We're called to stand firm in it. What's interesting is First Peter also calls us to live a certain way, to do certain things. But again, it's always from the don't just do something. Stand there and then you do what honors Christ from the posture of standing. This morning, my outline has five reasons why we should stand firm in the true, true grace of God. Uh, we'll find all of the reasons in this text, even though he doesn't lay them out that way. It's what I'm choosing to do for our, for our wrap-up. I think you'll be able to follow along with me as we look at these five important reasons why we would stand firm in the true grace of God. As you can tell, I'm motivated about this, excited about talking about this, um, First Peter has been a great book to learn about what Christ has done uh, and how we can rest in Him and then act in light of our resting. So I hope this is a great send-off for this great book. The first reason why it's vital to stand firm in the true grace of God is because it is where spiritual stability is found. It's where spiritual stability is found. Spiritual success, spiritual life, legitimacy, um, success... It's what we're looking for. And I want to have that be a reason because when he says in verse 12, the true grace of God, then he says, stand firm in it. In light of the whole book, that, 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 that's where legitimacy lies. And later we're going to talk about the false grace of God, which isn't really the grace of God, but he's saying the true grace of God. It's where, it's where you can find spiritual health. It's where you can find spiritual safety. It's where you can flourish spiritually. As opposed to following this or that or this or that, stand firm in this legitimate place in the true grace of God. And I've already said, I think the true grace of God is, is another way of saying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because everything so far in these five chapters has been about that. A great, um, a great summary passage, a great summary verse, if you want to see it, would be chapter 3, verse 18. Mentally, I always run back to it because it's a good encapsul, encapsulization. Is that, how, is that a word? It's a good way to encapsulate, to, to put it all together. 3.18 is a great one. The true grace of God, well, let's put that another way. The way Peter has been saying it. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Notice it's Him, He did this. The righteous for the unrighteous, or the perfect upholder of God's standards for the breaker, breakers of God's standards. That He, notice it's Him, He's the one doing the actions, that He might bring us, those who would believe, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, even resurrection. So we, we have it all right there. We, we have life, the righteous for the unrighteous. We have His death, uh, His suffering on the cross. We have His resurrection. It's, it's all Him. We're standing in that true grace of God. It's where you want to be. It's where you find, again, safety, significance. It's where you find the, your, 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 I don't know how to put it, your, your home base for action. 
our, our, our Christian actions are going to flow out of that. It's the true grace of God. It's where we want to go. It's where we want to be. Standing firm there. The word that he uses for standing, we could talk a little bit about that. We can talk about it in terms of a military regimen. They're to stand their ground and not give up that area that they're to be standing firm in. Or you can think of sports when a coach says, don't leave your position. That's a good way of thinking of it. This is where you want to be. If you want to win the game, if you want to succeed, then you player X, Y, or Z, you need to stay in your designated area so that we can win this as a team. Stand firm in it. Legitimacy, success. If you want to win, this is what you've got to do. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm in your spot, if you will, church, if we're going to be successful in gospel ministry, gospel kind of living. It's also used in the Bible, as a matter of fact, of a city Maybe these words will be familiar of this concept. How can a city that is divided stand? It can't. We're going to be in the old world, in the first century world, it's going to be overtaken. If the, if the city's not together and united, uh, having a good defense and identity, then they're going to be conquered. They're going to be divided. How can a city that's divided stand and be successful and remain having that identity that they enjoy? It's also used in legal matters of standing, but we won't go quite that far this morning. Authentic safety, authentic flourishing, authentic identity as legitimate Christians and Christianity. It's in this standing in the true grace of God. And, and think of it in terms of, of First Peter's talking about Christian suffering and Christians being persecuted for righteousness' sake because they're standing up for what's right and what's biblical and what Jesus said and what's honoring to Christ. Stand there, because that is the true grace of God. We might not want to. We might want to run and chase this, because it promises spirituality. It promises success. It promises ease. And Peter's saying, no, you stand firm in the true grace of God in Christ, because this is where legitimacy lies. Don't be fooled. Don't be misled. Stand firm in it. Maybe a clue for us as to why so many Christians live unstable lives and, and chasing this and chasing that because they, 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 in part, lots of people I talk to who don't even know what the gospel is. They know all kinds of religious words. They even know Bible verses for memory. But so many people I meet who I talk to about what the gospel is, they actually don't give me the gospel when I ask them what the gospel is. Stand firm in it. Guess what? We can't stand firm in it if we don't know what the it is. And so Peter's been belaboring what the it is. It's what Christ has done. The righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring, he might bring us to God. Don't just do something. Stand there. It's where success is found. Ultimately. Peter's not the first one to pick this up, or he's not the only one to pick it up. Listen to these great, great words familiar to lots of you. Romans 5, 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul says the same thing from the same playbook. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, not what we do, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we 
stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Again, it's, it's Him. We, we're standing in Him. And that's how we have this grace. And in Romans chapter 5, at the beginning of Romans chapter 5, it's talking about this is how we can have joy and rejoicing even amidst our suffering. When I'm suffering is when I'm so tempted to follow something else. Because I think it's going to offer me a better life than my life in Christ. Maybe I don't want to be persecuted for righteousness because I don't like to be persecuted because I like an easy life. And so it's when I'm most maybe tempted to go somewhere else because I want to have happiness. The emphasis from the apostles, stand firm in the true grace of God. That's where you want to be. So as a pastor, I want to say, we've got to stand firm in it. The it being the true grace of God, which is the truth about Christ. may lead to suffering, chapter 3, verse 14. But it's where legitimacy lies. Let's move on to another reason that's vital to stand firm in the true grace of God, and that's because there is such a thing. That's because there is such a thing. In other words, there is such a thing as the true grace of God. This one's super obvious. But sometimes obvious is really important. Right there in verse 12, toward the end, this is the true grace of God. There is such a thing as the true grace of God. He says, this is the true grace of God. I don't have to keep doing that, do I? There really is such a thing. Peter doesn't say, this is my truth, and you have your truth. He's not saying, this is the truth that first century fishermen hold to. He's not saying things like that. This is the true grace of God. God. There is such a thing. See, now we're in the realm of the objective because we're in the realm of history and we're in the realm of eyewitnesses. We're in the realm of Jesus didn't show up and do all these things and then then leave. You know, truth is in the eye of the beholder. And so you can make of Him and what He did whatever you'd like to. Is that your truth? Well, this is my truth. Isn't that nice? It's not very... It's not very um, popular to speak in these terms because it sounds arrogant. And it would be arrogant if it were my truth. And I was imposing my truth on you. Or you were imposing your truth on me. Because who in the world are you to tell me or vice versa? But if we have Jesus come from heaven doing lots of things and speaking and interpreting the meaning of what He did, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. No one is good except God. And on and on the list could go. Jesus didn't show up and do stuff and say, make of it whatever you will. Jesus came and did stuff. I know that sounds technical, but He came and did stuff, right? And He explained the stuff He did. Believe in me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. 
He's interpreting his actions. So now his apostles, who were eyewitnesses to these things, can say things like, this is the true grace of God. There is such a thing as the true grace of God. And now actually it's not arrogant to say we would affirm that. It would be arrogant to deny that if that's what Jesus Christ, the only one who's ever been raised from the dead, has said. The height of arrogance, as I like to say, would be to say something else. Humility would say, I'm with him. I, I, I agree with him, the one who has the power to raise the dead. Just trying to encourage you to think sanely, to think rationally about these things. Maybe to question how you're questioned with good reasonableness. There is such a thing as the true grace of God. And the Apostle Peter says, the true grace of God is regarding Jesus' perfect life, substitutionary perfect death, and substitutionary successful resurrection for everyone who would ever believe in Him. This is the true grace of God. This is how God has chosen to give us something free. The true grace of God. It's amazing. It's amazing. Maybe, maybe look with me if you would at chapter 1. Just regarding this. And then we're going to speed up because I told you we were going to be done today. We are going to be done today. If I can help it at least. Lord willing. I want to read this because I failed to mention one important thing and that's in First Peter we have all these truths about Jesus and we're supposed to live a certain way in light of our standing. But in First Peter he's also informing the hearers and he's informing us by extension that in this world, in this life, before Christ returns and glorifies you, you're going to suffer. Okay? And so I don't want to, I don't want to forget that. I want to remind you of that because again, it would be easy for me if I were not informed and I didn't know what I was talking about to say, all these great, wonderful things are yours and the true grace of God would be for you to never suffer. No, there is such a thing as the true grace of God. You have everything in Christ, but this is not the new Jerusalem and you're not yet glorified. And so the true grace of God has you suffering now because we're still in a broken world with hostility against Christ. It's still the true grace of God. So maybe um, just another good summary text regarding this as well as um, the reality of suffering in the here and now. So chapter 1, verse 3 is just a good way of summarizing. Uh, 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, a uh, good parallel of grace. He has, ca- he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, see, now we're looking toward the future for for the experience of all of these things. Keep going. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now, here we go, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And he goes on to talk about tested genuineness of your faith, and then the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end there. 
in verse 7 where we will all experience these things fully. Stand firm in this. This is how the true grace of God works. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 1, we're called elect. All the great stuff. Elect of God. Chapter 1, verse 1. Exiles. The true grace of God has you in the here and now as an elect exile. Elect exile. And that's a tough spot to be in. But it doesn't mean you should be looking for something else that's true. It's where we stand. Ready to move on? Let's go to a third reason why we need to remember we're going to stand firm in the true grace of God. And that's because there are counterfeits. There are counterfeits. Remember in chapter 5, verse 8, he talked about your adversary, the devil, prowling about like a roaring lion. We need to be sober-minded, watchful for him and his ways. So we know there's, that we know there's an adversary. Uh, Second Peter is all about the counterfeit, so I'm going to borrow from Second Peter for a moment. But what I want to, the reason it triggered in my mind um, th- this reality is because stand firm in the true grace of God. I think he's saying the true grace of God because there might be fake graces of God. See, there's a lot of people who talk about Jesus. There are a lot of people who talk about grace. There are a lot of people who quote lots of Bible verses. We don't want to be those people who maybe are promoting and believing in an imposter so-called grace of God. And we don't want to stand in that as our basis for doing ministry and thinking and living and suffering and all of the rest. We want to stand firm not in some kind of counterfeit grace of God. We want to stand firm in the true grace of God. If I realize there, there are adversaries and there's one main adversary fueling all of the adversaries, all the more do I want to stand firm in the real thing because I know there is the possibility of fakers. One of my favorite words. Fakers. False. Wolves in sheep's clothing. The Apostle Paul even said in his warning to the Ephesian leaders that some of these false teachers will even arise amongst yourselves. We want to stand firm all the more in the true grace of God because there is such a thing as fake grace. And the list could go pretty long, but I, I, I mean, one major one, it would be a major one in our city, would teach that grace is a substance. You have to go get more grace from the church every Sunday or Saturday night or whenever you're going, and you go receive grace. And so they'll speak in terms of graces that you can get and then you lose. So you've got to come back to get more graces. The religion that claims to be Christian and grace is a substance. It's a thing. It's a commodity. In the Bible, grace is nothing. You, you don't go get your grace cup filled. Okay? You, you, don't, you don't go receive grace. Grace is God giving us freely all of the blessings that are ours in Christ. Okay? There are fake graces. There are other kinds. Not just the kind I'm referring to, but there would be other kinds. There's the fake grace of God that says, if you are a Christian, you won't suffer. That's a fake grace, because that's not what Peter's been saying. 
There's a fake grace of God that says, uh, as long as you keep doing enough and as long as you keep going at it, then maybe God will accept you. Maybe. And maybe with the help of your friends and help of some donations and lots and lots of suffering, then maybe God will accept you. That's a, that's a fake grace. That's not a real grace. In First Peter, it's kept in heaven for you ready to be revealed at the last time. It's sure. God has caused you to be born again. He has done this. It's not a faker grace. It's all Him according to His mercy, freely, free gift. We say free gift of His grace. That's just a redundancy. Because grace means it's free to you. It doesn't mean it was free to Christ, but it's free to you. Let's stand firm in the true grace of God and act in light of that because there are lots of fake graces that aren't really grace. I had thought we would go back to chapter 1 again, but I don't think we have the time to do that. So we won't do that. I'll just say one thing, and that's where we have to start, if we're going to be safe from the adversary prowling about, let's at least start with knowing what Grace is. Let's at least start know, by knowing what the gospel is. 3.18 is a great place to start. It's about what He has done. We stand in Him. It's the, the, the place of safety and protection and stability and success. And we're going to live in light of that, knowing that there's suffering in the here and now. That's going to be the best way for us to be safe amidst counterfeits. Let's move on to the next one. Number four. Another reason it's vital to stand firm in the true grace of God, and that's because it is credibly sourced. It is credibly sourced. In other words, it comes from a credible source. And the credible source it comes from is Peter. But there's some fascinating things here, even with word use, that will help you even appreciate it more. Credible source. How about chapter 12? Or, how about First Peter chapter 12, speaking of false teachers? <laughs> And next week we're going to start 2 Nephi, verse by verse, where it says you're saved by grace through faith after all you can do. Um, It does say that in the book of 2 Nephi. By the way, it's the only portion of the Book of Mormon I have memorized um, because it's so blatantly contrary to Ephesians 2. You've been saved by grace through faith after all you can do. Don't stand in that grace. Don't even step in that grace because it's the kind of thing you'd step in. But I digress. Credible source, Peter. He says, verse 12, not chapter 12, chapter 5, verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, he's going to use family language in these last verses, doesn't mean he's the actual brother, could be possible, but he's probably speaking figuratively, by Silvanus, chapter 5, verse 12, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I, Peter. Okay, so it seems like Silvanus is the deliverer. Okay, he, he, he delivers the letter. He's with Peter and he's the delivery person. Some people think he might have been the amanuensis, just to use a big multisyllabic word, the one who actually penned it for him as he dictated. Um, most people think he's the, he's the one who delivered the message. But notice I, I meaning I, Peter. And in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, I don't remember which, but both words are in there. 
I, Peter, write this to you. If you're an apostle, I'll say for the, till my dying day, an apostle is a messenger with authority, with the authority that one they represent. That's why I joke and say, I think we should have red letter Bibles. And they should be red letter from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. If it's written by an apostle, they represent the one they're an apostle of. Peter is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I write to you about the true grace of God. Well, guess what? Credible source. And an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. So again, Peter's not saying, I write this to you because I went to a crusade and had a warm feeling come all over my body and the person leading the crusade told me it was the Holy Spirit and so I can write to you about my experience. He's not doing that. He's not saying, I'm writing to you as the guy with the camera close up to his face on TBN or CBN or whatever else and I'm going to sell you, sell you vitamins later. Call the number on the bottom of the screen. That's not who Peter is. I'm writing to you about the true grace of God and I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's credible. It's on good authority that this has happened. Not only because who he's been sent by, but because of what he witnessed, what he saw. And he's going to use this language fascinatingly enough uh, as as he keeps going. I have written to you briefly, written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. Exhorting and declaring. The word he uses for exhorting, he's using a word uh, that that would describe standing next to him and seeing things the way he does. So I'm exhorting you. I'm calling you to, to, to see things the way I see them. I, Peter, an apostle. So he's not saying, I'm exhorting you, I'm so mad at you, dumb sheep. Right? That, that's, that's, that's not the idea. He's, he's not scolding them, he's not angry with them, he's not mad at them. He's exhorting them, he's calling them to see things the way he sees them as an apostle who saw the risen Christ, who suffered. Come, come stand on my side, if you will, and look at things. And you'll know this is the true grace of God in Christ Jesus. Stand in it. See things my way, the way I've seen them. It's like a coach who's played before and been successful. It's not the know-nothing angry coach shouting at players. It's the coach who has experience and success and a proven track record who's been there and done that and knows how to get it done and he's yelling at his players. Not because he wants them to fail or he wants to somehow exercise some kind of goofball authority over them, but because he wants them to succeed to succeed, and that's what they want to do, and so they're going to listen to the coach who's exhorting them to see the, see things the way he sees them. That's how you win the game. I love it. It's a great image. Apostolic authority exhorting you. Come over to my side. I know what I'm talking about. You want to stand? You want to succeed? You want to know how things work? You want to know reality, ultimate reality? Don't listen to the false liars about grace. Listen to me. And then he uses another word that is also interesting where he says declaring. It's the word where, uh, it's a word for witness. Like martyrs are witnesses. So again, declaring there's authority, there's boldness. 
affirming something true. I'm declaring this to be true objectively, but I'm declaring it as a witness. Because I've seen, I, I saw him when he was alive. I saw him when he was suffering throughout his whole life, punctuated when they take him away to crucify him. And then I see him raised from the dead. I'm a witness. And so I'm saying to you, Christians, who might be tempted to go elsewhere to some faker Christianity or some other kind of thing because you don't like having a suffering life, listen to me. I'm exhorting you. I'm declaring to you as from the vantage point of a witness. I like that. It wasn't because he had a male order divinity degree. It wasn't because he was trying to make a buck or had some kind of scheme going on. Eyewitness, urging, and exhorting. I'm out of breath. I got so excited I missed my, my, my favorite bash was he isn't telling you that Daniel is about a diet. Bummer, I should have worked that in earlier. I wasn't looking at my notes. Darn. So says the obese preacher, the Daniel diet. Anyway, see, I shouldn't do that. I should, I should just stick to the notes the right way. There's all these things that we do in the church, all these kind of goofball-isms that we do that we ought not be doing. It's not the true grace of God. The true grace of God is the truth about what Christ has accomplished. We stand firm in it. That's where we receive the favor of God, right? The true grace of God. It's in Christ. And when we do things, we do things because of our standing. Stand firm in it. And now I'm going to have to write a whole other letter to you about the false teachers. And by the way, just saying, if you really were good at standing firm in it, I wouldn't need to write another letter. Number five. By the way, we're not doing Second Peter next. Um, we, we've done it recently, I think, at least before. Anyway, let's go to number five. Fifth reason, a vital reason to stand firm in the true grace of God because it is universally applicable. It is universally applicable. This isn't just for these particular Christians. It's not just for a certain select group of Christians. Um, We can see that this is true of other Christians as well. Verse 13 says, She who is at Babylon... I don't think I I don't think I read a single commentator who thinks he wants to be taken literally here. I'm sure there are some, but the general view is is he's using Old Testament imagery, right? He's talking about elect exiles and then he's going to talk about another church and that other church, the church that's in Babylon. See, they're going through the same kind of thing. There's a fellowship of his sufferings that we experience. So I'm going to take it that way. She who, probably using that to describe a church, some people think it's he's describing his wife. Could have been. He had a wife. We know he had a wife. How? Because he had a mother-in-law, and it's usually hard to have a mother-in-law if you don't have a wife. Um, remember, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. But again, I digress. Um, but could, could have been talking about an, an actual 
individual, most people think he's talking about another church, she who is at Babylon in some other suffering place where Christians are suffering and persecuted, who is likewise chosen, just like you, chapter 1, verse 1, elect, chosen of God, elect exiles, now we have chosen people in Babylon. They're in this with you. Sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Could have been an actual son named Mark, because after all, he had a mother-in-law, and that means you had a wife. You do the math. Um, most people think Mark here would be the, the writer of Mark, the, the gospel according to Mark, uh, who learned his theology and learned his history and learned about Jesus from Peter. Don't have to die on that hill, but that would be the common way of understanding what's going on here. He talks about a she, he talks about a son, uh, and he's going to go on to talk about family kinds of love. Then it says... Um, In verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you. They're not experiencing peace. They're suffering for righteousness sake. And then he's talking about this other church that's represented as being in Babylon, probably suffering as well, not where they want to be. It's not the new Jerusalem. But what do we do? We experience peace from Christ. Peace when we don't have peace. Shalom when we don't have shalom. They're not experiencing peace. They're not where they want to be. They don't want to suffer, especially for what's doing right, for, for doing what's right and honoring to God. And yet he can say to them, even though I know it's just a greeting, he can say it in earnestness. This is a common Christian experience, as would be the case with that other church. I could quote the Apostle Paul who would say, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If I needed to do that, I could quote Jesus as well. But since we're just using this conclusion, I'm using it as a way to remind you that this is a common Christian experience. And it will be a common Christian experience till Christ returns. But until he returns, we do have something of substance. We have peace with God. We have peace in Christ. We can stand firm in it. I want to end by saying shalom, uh, if you're in Christ. But I want to end by giving you a good summary that I forgot about earlier. I was going to wedge it in somewhere. So much of what's happening in First Peter when it comes to the true grace of God would be there's an error that thinks because we're not glorified, we're not actually saved. Okay? There's an opposite error that says because we're saved we are glorified and there's no suffering. Both are errors that First Peter does a wonderful job of addressing. In, in, in sophisticated theology classes, we would talk about the already and the not yet. And the reason theologians have invent, in, invented those categories, you won't find them in a scripture search, um, but they've invented those categories is to think through the teachings of books like First Peter. Right? You are saved. And then he talks about a salvation that's ready to be revealed when Christ returns. False t- because, because Christ is already raised, it's a guarantee that you will be raised. Sometimes the Bible speaks of it in past tense because it's emphasizing the already. And yet it's not till he is revealed that we actually experience these things. So if you really want me to drop some knowledge on you, there's a false teaching that would, that would have an under-realized eschatology. Try this today when you go to Chick-fil-A. I'll meet you at Chick-fil-A up the street. Wait for me. They're closed today, right? 
an under-realized eschatology, a view of the end. Under-realized would be, it's all hanging in the balance. Will God accept me or not? I sure hope enough people are praying for me, and I sure hope I can do enough acts of charity, love, and goodwill, and maybe, maybe, maybe after thousands of years of suffering and purgatory, God will accept me. Classic under-realized eschatology. Chapter 3, verse 18, Christ brings us to God. Okay? Under, don't, don't have an under-realized view of, of, of judgment. But don't have the other extreme error, common in the charismatic movement, would be, and other movements as well, would be an over-realized eschatology. You shouldn't be sick. You should be wealthy. Right? You shouldn't be suffering. And First Peter seeks to correct that. That would be over-realized. It's true, you'll be glorified. In fact, the Bible says it in past tense sometimes. But you're not yet glorified. This is not the new Jerusalem. This is not heaven. And so we've got to get this straight. First Peter is so helpful at bringing both of these into focus. Because Christ has done it, He's accomplished everything. We stand in the true grace of God, even though it's hard to live like an elect exile. It is hard to live like an, uh, hard to live like an elect exile, chapter 1, verse 1. But it's where we are. So you don't need to be confused. Life, life is hard enough. Christian, even as a Christian, life is hard enough. You don't need to be confused about this. It's all sure in Christ, but it hasn't been experienced by me now. And it won't be until Christ returns. You got that straight? Underrealized? Overrealized? Should we talk about the hypostatic union? Should we talk about the ineffable tetragrammaton? Man, there's so many things we can learn. But the great thing to learn is Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he was raised on the third day. If you trust in Christ, you will have eternal life. It's all you really need to know. The rest of the stuff is important, but not as important as that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for great things that are ours in Christ. Thank you that our resurrection, if we've believed or trusted in Jesus, is absolutely sure because his has already happened. We look forward to the day when Christ returns, not to judge us, but to glorify us. Thank you so much for him. Help us as individuals, help us as a church to stand firm in the true grace of God, the grace of God that is found in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.